Hi, I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to American Optimist. Delighted to have my friend Barry Weiss here today. Barry, thanks for coming. I'm so excited to be here. And so I was, I was just mentioning, I was just in randomly in West Texas, and even there, everyone's talking about your work. So you've, you've definitely had a huge cultural impact the last year. And when you left the New York Times, you kind of opened up the curtain on illiberalism in America and what's going on with that. And all these institutions are obviously, they've been conquered by people with these very difficult, interesting views. Like what's, what, what, what's, what's going on? How, how did this happen? And are, are we, are we in trouble? Are we going to be able to fix this? Like what, what, what do we do in response to what well, we're seeing here? First of all, I'm excited to hear that about West Texas because my context for West Texas is basically the show Friday Night Lights, um, <laughs> which I'm sure has absolutely no connection to. It's a little bit. When you fly in, you see basically all oil rigs. The street art there is oil rigs though on the buildings too, which I thought was pretty interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. So Big picture, 10,000 foot version. I think what we are living through will be remembered ultimately by historians as a kind of cultural revolution. Um, it's a soft cultural revolution. It's obviously not coming from some dictator from the top. Um, it's coming from a kind of hive mind um, that is, you know, connecting both media and Hollywood and big tech and corporations. And I, I think, you know, the good news and the bad news about it is that ideas really, really matter. You know, the old view was that, um, and, and this was a view shared by, you know, liberals and, and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, that essentially, like, what happened on campus stayed on campus. That you could be, you know, a gender studies major at Oberlin or an anthro, you know, major at Columbia or, what, or Middle East studies major. And you might encounter some wild and crazy ideas that Fox, you know, loves for, for its fodder at night. But ultimately, that person would go and get a job at J.P. Morgan or McKinsey at Netflix or HBO. And they would leave those ideas behind and they would come to be shaped by the institutions. But as Yuval Levin and others have wisely pointed out, that's not actually what's happened. What's happened is that the institutions, ultimately, as we've you know learned during the Trump White House, are people. Institutions are made of people. And when people come in with ideas that are um, not harmonious with the ideals of the institution, it's possible for them to change them. Now, what is the single ingredient at all of these sort of places that you mentioned that have fallen to this ideology? It's lack of leadership at the top, lack of courage in standing up for the values of the institution. And I think as we've seen at places like the New York Times, but but certainly other places as well, you know, the kind of trust and authority and public standing that take decades, sometimes centuries to accrue can be torn down in a matter of minutes. And, and, and why is there's lack of courage? You're saying it came from the universities, it obviously went into media, went into other institutions like a Fortune 500. And, and why are these places like- To the military, I mean, it's the, the military, yeah. It's, and, do you think it's the whole military or is it just the people running their PR? Is it actually like- I, I don't think it's the whole military, although, you know, you need to have, I was having a conversation with HR McMaster about this the other day. It, it's not the whole military, but let me just give you an example from yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, Chris Rufo broke the story that at Lockheed Martin, there was like this seminar of like a white guilt seminar for being three days. being being white men. Yeah. yeah, and like you need to, you know, you're implicitly racist, like it, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Anyone watching this has been paying attention to what's going on. So when it's even at Lockheed Martin, you're like, what is going on here? And, you know, we've only seen sort of a handful of institutions or companies that are willing to say no. You know, one of them being Trader Joe's. I don't know if you recall earlier this summer, um, some people uh, organized a petition because they were offended by like the Mexican brand of food inside Trader Joe's. And you know what Trader Joe's said? 
sorry, if you don't like these, buy them somewhere else. Our customers like it. But why is that coverage so weird? Is it people who are running Lockheed Martin, they're afraid that if they do stand up, they're going to be made an example of and they're going to lose contracts? Like, or... Like, like, like what, all these media institutions, they're afraid people are going to leave. Like, 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 why isn't there courage? Well, I think the cynical answer, right? The answer that sort of the anti-woke left, um, the Marxist left would give you is that this is all a cynical ploy to pit us against one another based on identity and race and to distract from the real battle, which is about class. And if a company can say, look, we're doing this diversity and inclusion, you know, people won't think about the financials and the rest. I do think there is something to that. I think that there in some way, this is just kind of like an incredible distraction because isn't it easier for Amazon, let's say, or Facebook to put out a statement about DNI than it is for them to confront the fact that they're increasingly monopolistic? I mean, it, so that's the cynical read. That, that, that's, that's interesting because my friends on the right would say that the that the crazy Marxist class stuff has been merged into the race stuff and they're doing the race stuff instead. But you're saying people on the left would say there's a distraction from the things they want to be focused on. I think that there's a fissure inside the left. So your friends on the right who claim that this is kind of like an identitarian Marxism or an ethno-communism, they're not crazy when they say that, but there is still a left that is class-based, kind of old school Mm -hmm. and anti this sort of um, hard identity politics. Now, look, the 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 other thing that's going on, and I was at an extremely interesting dinner the other night with the heads of a bunch of different companies, and they all reported back the same thing. In private, they were saying, we're alarmed about what's happening. We're alarmed about the spread of this ideology. We think it could hollow out our companies. And yet we're not saying, and I said, okay, why aren't you saying anything publicly? And the reason essentially was that they're scared of their own employees. It's, it's the combination of the rage and the fear of that rage that they're seeing play out on social media. And make no mistake, what happens on Twitter is real life or can become real life very easily. So they're afraid their own employees are going to destroy their business somehow if they if they're they push against them. Inside, hard. like, let me just give you the example of the New York Times. Inside the New York Times, the vast majority of people, especially, let's say, the older generation, 40 and up, believed in the old school values of journalism, you know, striving for objectivity, even though we know we're subjective, uh, telling the truth, even when it's inconvenient. The younger generation does not believe in those ideals. They believe in something called what they call moral clarity. They believe in social justice. They believe in journalism in the pursuit of a narrative. It's more like socialist realist art. What is the weapon that they wield? The weapon that they wield is a incredibly powerful weapon of the moral stain. If people don't go along with them, and that includes the, let's say the masthead of the company at the New York Times, they will have no compunction going out and calling the New York Times and the masthead of the New York Times racist and backward and maybe even creating a hostile or unsafe work environment. That is a major liability if you're running a company. And so, you know, one of the things I used to joke about um, back when I was at the New York Times, not joke, but it was real, don't hire anyone who has a college degree is what I would say to people on the masthead. Just don't do it because you don't need a college degree or a journalism degree to go out into the world and ask people At questions. least not agreeing in journalism is what I was told. My friend, I met a friend who runs a Daily Mail and he said if you hire people with journalism degrees, they come in like Marxists and they try to conquer everything. Yeah, but even just what would it look like? What, what would, you know, if you really want to strive for diversity in the New York Times, I'm sorry, but getting people of different skin colors who all went to the same four boarding schools yeah. and and universities yeah, yeah, it's more, they're, they're is more, not genuine. They all think the same thing. Yeah, they're more white than the people they're they're attacking for being too white. And yeah, it's just like they part. all they all think the same way. So if you know, I I remember saying, let's hire people from the middle of the country, people that you know have military service, and people that haven't been through this sort of um, 
machine of, of schools what, like what, the ones, frankly, that I went to. What, 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 one of my biases is that, you know, at Stanford in the 1980s, they had this whole thing with Jesse Jackson where they threw out Western Civ, right? They said, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And, and it feels to me a little bit like this is the first young generation that's just totally disconnected from the values of free speech and equality under the law and due process and all, and all the history of the West and why we value these things. Is that, is that partially what's happening here? Is this tying into not, not teaching these histories and, and values anymore? Yeah, I think what's at the root of this is a nonchalance and an arrogance. Um, and I, oh, let, let me step back for a second. I don't think that you could have an ideology take root in the way that this has among our elite class without, it's, it's kind of ironic, without, it, like it's evidence of our incredible success in the West yep. and in America. It's a, it's a form of decadence because you're so successful. Yeah, it's, it's a luxury belief. Yeah. To believe that America is a great evil, to believe that the West is not exceptional in its values, even with all of our flaws, is a luxury belief. And- the fact that, you know, it, I, to me, it's not a coincidence that the people that are embracing it are the people that are sort of most coddled in American society. Um, and yes, I mean, I, I definitely think just I, I graduated from school 15 years ago, so I'm old. But, you know, I, I'm very much in touch with a lot of college students now mentoring them and seeing what's going on and especially students that are alarmed by what they're seeing. And it's baked in like the the premise is that you know, is sort of cultural relativism. America is not only not great, but, you know, its founders because of their own moral hypocrisy that, you know, the founding documents are somehow evil to the core and rotten and need to be torn down. That enlightenment ideals, because they were created by dead white men, same deal. Like the answer to that, I'm sorry, is simply no. And if you think that, it is evidence to me that you have been <laughs> raised in the most exceptional you, country in the history of the world. You've been so coddled that you don't even know what good and bad is or that what, what, how, how bad most of history was. Basically. Yeah, and frankly, it's also, it's so parochial. It's so parochial to, to argue that like this country is more racist than any other country in the history of the world or any other country right now not is to not be yeah. able to look beyond your, your navel. They I'm haven't sorry. gone to Japan or the Middle East or China or, yeah. or Africa and seen how other people think. And, yeah. and racism's evil. And we as a country have a long way to go. But um, to look at the span of American history and not see that that we have made enormous progress and the reason that we've been able to make enormous progress are precisely because of the values that are encoded in our founding documents and because of the values, Joe, that you and I value, like equality under the law, like freedom of speech, like the ideal that everyone should be judged by their character and not by their family lineage or their immutable characteristics. Like, go other places in the world, you don't have those values and you see the society that you get yeah. to live in. Yeah, I think, and I think, I think, I do, I do agree people totally underestimate the progress we've made in the last even 20 years. I was saying, I was just in West Texas. I sat next to a, to a person yesterday. He, his, his father had come over as a legal immigrant picking onions and he'd helped his father as a kid and they got amnesty and he'd worked his way up and he's now very successful in the oil business and he works internationally with oil tools and he's starting a tequila brand right now that's doing really <laughs> well and is you know and Mark Wahlberg is going to help with it right and, and he's and he, wow. and, and he was offered to be on a Fortune 500 board and he was filling out the documents with his lawyers and and, he, and his lawyers saw something where it noted that it's because he's a minority that he was offered and so therefore he turned it down because and, every, wow. and, and everyone's kind of proud of him there because he's been very successful and he's very mm. proud, very proud of you know coming from those humble backgrounds 
but 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 you know it's it's interesting. It's like this is these places in the rural parts of America. They're not they're not like mostly mostly super racist places. Like I think they probably were 50 years ago. So I think people do underestimate the progress. Like, I guess, I guess the question is. I mean, look at look at the rate of you know mixed race marriages in this country. It's like a hockey stick. Totally. Even looking at my own life, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time, where we're like, "Holy!" Sh-. Like I remember what it was to be you know out when I was 18 years old and gay marriage wasn't legal, and in fact, like you know, even Barack Obama was against it. Yeah. Look at like what's possible even in the span of a life, and how normalized that so, now so, is. So how do we? How do we continue to make progress without tearing everything apart? Because I think I think it's very it is very optimistic what we've achieved, and now we're in this really weird cultural revolution stage. How does this resolve in a positive way? Do we need to build new institutions? Do we can we fix the ones? Can we give courage to the people running some of these media institutions and 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 and, and Fortune five hundred companies? Like what's how does this resolve in a positive way? I think that we're in. I know that this show is called the American Optimist, so I need to give you an optimistic answer. And long term, I am optimistic, but I think in the short term, it's going to be a little bit of pain in the short term. Yeah, I think that we're we're what's the name of that R.R. Reno book, The Return of the Strong Gods? I think it's called. We'll have to check that, but it's something like that. I think that we're in a period right now where especially people of my parents' generation are sort of like waiting for normal to return. And it could They're be a waiting while for, for the them. center to come back. Yeah. Like I don't see it coming back in that way. I think that things are going to be more extreme, more politicized at the moment and more tribal. Um, and, you know, frankly, like the world that you and I were born into and the world I think that our parents took for granted is just not the world that is, our, our children are going to inherit. If, if we're going to be leaders in, the, in our culture, do we need to be more extreme in some ways then and need to push certain things harder in order to get people to pay attention to us? Like, is, is, it, is it naive to try to be a, a, a rational centrist in, in this world? I don't think it's naive. Um, I simply think we need to acknowledge that there are these really powerful waves um, that are crashing against the center and figuring out um, how to be in that reality. When it comes to to courage and building new institutions, look, I'm, I voted with my feet. I left, you know, what by any stretch is like, you know, a prime job, not just in American journalism, but in journalism in general, because I believe that the fight for liberalism broadly defined, um, is the fight of my lifetime, is the fight of our lifetime. And, you know, is like everything is at stake in that fight. I felt that I couldn't do that job and wage that battle inside an institution that was actively captured by this illiberal ideology. And we see that and pick up the pages of the paper. It's, it's undeniable at this, Mm -hmm. at this phase. So for me, you know, I'm all about building new institutions. That's what I'm trying to do. It's starting small with a newsletter, but I want to build it into a much bigger company. Um, I think that, you know, there has to be a better option for people between Rachel Maddow or Laura Ingram. You know, I think the majority of Americans are purple people. They're not extreme red and they're not extreme blue. But they they want their tribal biases confirmed by whatever they listen to. It's a heroin hit. You know, like I felt that impulse even as a reporter, a a columnist and an editor where it's like, you know, no one needs to come down from the C-suite and tell you, 
guys, if you write about how Trump is a moral monster, that's going to do well with our readers. You yeah. see it and you feel it. And then you get the high from going viral. And so then you want to repeat it again and again and again and, well, and again. Well, well this, this, this incentive is everywhere, right? So a lot of what you do goes will go most viral when you like show how ridiculous the woke people are. So there's, there's something similar where you have to kind of do in order to get these things to grow. Exactly. And, and what is what is what I'm fighting against and what I haven't found a way to solve is is audience capture. Right. Yeah. It's like. I might have a Substack now and it's doing really well, but it's the same incentive structure. You still need to give them the dopamine hit. Right. Yeah. And the question is like, is it possible, you know, it's in a way it's, you know, it's a business. Is it possible yeah. that you can kind of restrain yourself from like, I could run a piece every single day that dunks on, you know, the woke left and I'll see my numbers go up and up and up. Literally my wallet. Expands. But you also want, you also want to engage with people. Exactly. I, I do not want to radicalize my readers in the yeah. way I felt that mainstream news organizations were doing that. And so it's incumbent on me, you know, as an editor and a writer to make sure that I'm giving them a mix of views. It, it, it is, it is a tough incentive structure, right? Because on both the right and the left, the more they can radicalize people on their side, the more they can get things done. So for example, in Georgia, if you wanted to win the election, you need to radicalize 100,000 kids to come down there and go door to door. And that actually potentially is what won the election for the left. And it's the right now, if they want to respond, like their incentive is to radicalize and get a lot of people really worried that the whole world's coming to an end if we don't stop this thing and get everyone involved. So how do we, this seems like it iterates in a bad direction where we both want to radicalize everyone. Like how, how do we, how do we curtail this? Or, is this a, or you're saying there is a way they're just going to both radicalize a lot more for now. I don't see the wave breaking right yeah. now. What yeah. I see, what I want to do, knowing that the waves are there and mm. building, is to is to create readouts for reasonable, sane people. Um, that that it's like nuanced readouts that smart people can understand a little bit on both both sides. Yeah, and I'm not just talking about media. I'm talking about everything. Like I I really believe that you know. You asked before, like, you know, can can these institutions be saved or how can we give them courage? The ones that can be saved and shored up that are shaking at the knees right now should be because, mm -hmm. as you know, it's very, very, very hard to build new things. Um, but, you know, in a lot of cases, I think we're going to be looking over the next 50 or so years at at building new things. And, and that is the thing, you know, that ultimately gives me hope when I think back, like, you know, to when I think back to other periods of I'm looking at all these history books mm -hmm. up here to other times in American history, but you know, I'm always thinking about in the context of Jewish history, people have had to rebuild and build new things in much, much, much more other, difficult other, circumstances. There's, there's so many things that are far worse. That's true. We, we, yeah, we were very spoiled right now in, in a way. Basically. Yeah. But I think that it's like, that's an important thing for me to remind myself of when I feel that like this is so daunting do, what lies ahead for us. Do you us. think things stay as peaceful? There's not, this is maybe a little bit of a pessimistic topic, but it's, you know, it's, it's optimistic in the sense that in the 1960s, the 1970s, people don't realize there were, there were bombs all the time. There were bombs all the time. There were hundreds, over a hundred people killed by terrorists and SF. Even we don't even talk about this anymore in the seventies, but there's all this crazy history and, and, uh, and you know, you're showing, you're showing a huge amount of courage standing up to a lot of people. And there's a lot of angry people, tweeting at you I, I, I go online i try to like retweet defend. i know I, I try to go defend you because i'm like i'm like it's like it's like this like instinct that you're, that's like what we should be doing but it's it's crazy there's people who are really angry but fortunately things are actually been pretty peaceful right now and pretty civilized relative to 50 years ago is it's and hopefully that continues if that doesn't continue it could be a very scary world like how, how, how do you think about that because you have to think about your safety it's a really interesting question because some smart people i know 
believe that there's going to be more kinetic violence and other smart people I know say, eh, no, like, you know, people are lazy. People we're love all, we're getting all, we're their all cherry domestic, We're all domesticated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. people like are yeah. used to like clicking a button and getting, you know, their Amazon haagen delivered. So yeah, they'll be, you know, uh, I was going to use a bad word. They'll be barbarians online, <laughs> but you know, most of them aren't going to take to the street. Yeah. I really, I mean, so we're recording this having watched for the past two weeks, Jews being beaten in places like West Hollywood on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, synagogues defaced. Um, we could go on and on and on. Yeah. There is the past two weeks have sort of shaken me in the sense of, oh, wait, if you go online and if, you know, millions of people are saying that Israel is a apartheid regime to parrot the Soviet propaganda line that Zionism is racism and yep. therefore Zionists are racist or an American Jews are supporters of evil colonialist apartheid. We should not be surprised when people are inspired by that view of things take and take to the street yeah. and go up to a sushi restaurant in West Hollywood saying, who are the Jews here? And then pummel people. Yeah. So like, I don't know, like you're the one at this table, much better situated to understand the ways that, the online world are transforming us yeah. and are leaping into the world of flesh and blood and making, you know, making it, you know, there, I don't walk into a Jewish space now without an armed guard. I mean, there are armed guards at every single Jewish space in America. Yeah, my, wife, my wife and I talk about strange? this. My wife and I talk about this for our daughters, for what synagogue we're going to here and how to protect ourselves even here in Austin because we're, we're very nervous about that. Yeah, yeah. so it's like, we, I think that, you know, there's a question about like, is violence real? Well, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. Like the synagogue where I became a bat mitzvah was the site of the deadliest attack it's, on it's, Jews in American isn't, history. Isn't it strange though, that it's real for Jews and yet it doesn't seem to be real yet for this kind of woke or, or anti-woke battle, which is, which is, it's, it's almost like it's, it's a different plane. It's like, well, it's, it's on the plane of the internet, but it hasn't really translated to. Well, it's certainly you know, real for Asian Americans um, who are getting, but, but yeah, it's, I I think that we need to start drawing a connection between ideologies, both on the right and the left, that say that some people are either pure or impure, that some people are oppressed and oppressor, that some people are more American than others. Yeah. That's, you know, the far right, that some people are, you know, entitled to America and others are are fake Americans. And on the left, the idea that you know, some people are sort of collectively guilty and some people are collectively innocent by dint of their birth. These are deeply, deeply dangerous ideas. They're un-American and we should not be surprised that they are leading increasingly, it seems to me, to actual violence carried out in the real world, not just yeah. online violence. Yeah, both both the far left and the far right are putting people in the categories and trying to define those categories as bad, which is is, is very scary. It, it, it reminds me, you talk about history, it reminds me a little bit right now of the the Foundation series. I don't know if you ever read that with Asimov, but there's yeah. basically like, there's, there's gonna be this dark age that's coming that he figures out and predicts, and then he tries to take action because he knows it's gonna be going through a bad time, but if he does, if he builds the right things correctly, then it will then it'll come out of the bad time faster. So instead of the Roman Empire falling, it will only be like one or two generations. And does it work? And uh, ba ba basically, yeah, they figure it out. And it's, 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 it's something called psychohistory, where he basically mm -hmm. tries to, to use all his science to figure out how to map the cultural wave of what's going to happen. And then they build these institutions. And there's a then there's like secret institution, and there's a, an institution everyone focuses on, and the secret institution saves the day like, mm -hmm. eventually. But it's it is. It well, is, it's so interesting because. 
you know, the thing our parents tell us is like, you have to study history so you're not doomed to repeat it or whatever the line is. But the, the crap thing that I think we're learning is that you can know everything about history. It's still real and hard. you're just doomed to live through it. You still have to, you still have to repeat. You still have to go you through some part of it. You still have to live through it. And it. you could stand yeah. there screaming about how we're repeating things and don't we see where this is and, going. And we're still there. But we still have to live through it. So my, my, my bias my bias is, is that these are like the most coddled, ridiculous people who are leading this. And that everyone else is just too busy to bother pushing back on them. And that if we wake enough people up who are too busy to do it. And I think a lot of the most competent people who are like in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, who've built a lot of our institutions, um, they kind of saw it as maybe there's something wrong with you if you get too involved in politics because mm. because like that's what a lot of their friends did who had like ego issues and you know and, and like but like the really common people just like just, just the world's fine we're just gonna build and it's okay and, and I think that's, a, that's obviously different for our generation where the most common people have to get involved because we have to fix it now but I still think there's a lot of people around in their 60s and 70s who are really extraordinary and I feel like if we can activate them in a way to kind of confront this then it'd, it'd be a very powerful thing. And, and, and you kind of need to give them a little bit of courage and you need to tell them it's not the wrong thing. Like if they all, if they all do speak up, that's you know, be so positive. interesting. See what I see from my perspective, I think you're much closer to that cohort of people is like a sense of this is just going to burn itself out. You know, I'll, a I'll, sense you, that when that's a problem, that's a problem, right? Like, because it's, yeah, it's not, no, exactly. I think, I think we have to activate them. And it's because I think they all think that this is like, Oh, we lived through the sixties. It was much worse. This one's no big deal. It's going to be fine. And, and I'm comfortable. And I'm the kind of person who's just comfortable and doesn't worry about these things because, because they, because they, yeah, they always yes, fix themselves. Yes. There is this strange. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm, I've been so obsessed with this lately because you would think that the more, um, money, and status and capital in lots of ways that you have, the more equipped you are to resist this. But in fact, it like, kind of captures you. It, yeah. it captures you and you're able, you know, it's like you're able to get on your jet or move to your other house totally. or whatever. And I, I find there's like this, and maybe this is just, this is obviously true. And it just, it's taken me a while to see it. It's the people that are young that sort of have nothing to lose that are the most courageous and risk-taking and willing to stand up against this. And so we need to give the people that actually have more of the power to stop it, we have to inject them with the courage of 19, 20, 21, and 22-year-olds exactly. who, are, who, are, who, who are in the sort of teeth of this ideology and have the older generation really listen to what they are saying this ideology is about. Because if you're wondering why the museums you love and the publishing houses you love and the newspapers you used to trust and, you know, the, the, the Hollywoods, all of these things, if you want to understand why they are hollowed out, why they are no longer what they used to be, you have to look at the nucleation point for this. And that is the university. And so let's take seriously what these younger people are telling us about what this ideology actually is about because it's not what it claims to be. No, I, I totally agree. And, and on the younger people's side, what, what do we do with education? How do we teach young people to think critically about these things and not just to be captured by this? There's so many young people who are obviously captured by this whole institutional apparatus where they've probably never even heard of ideas about how bad it is. Like, how do we expose them to that? And what, what can we do there? Wow, well, I think w one, one of the key things we can do um, is show people that there's an alternative path. I mean, I had dinner the other night with two of the most, like one of the most impressive young couples I've met in LA. You know, she's a high school dropout. He didn't go to college. And I'm like, they're incredible. Like this, this sort of, I imagine that you and I maybe grew up in a sort of similar context to like, 
this sense of like, got to go for the best, got to get in the best school. Like maybe those aren't the best schools anymore. Yeah. Maybe there are different paths to success in this country that don't require um, a four-year degree and putting you in enormous debt. I think the other thing that we need to focus on and we're starting to see this, you know, with um, Tikva has this online course. There's there's lots of yeah. things that are starting to bubble up. We need to give people an alternative. That's like, this is like the decentralized solution versus the centralized solution, right? So, it's, it's like, and it's a, the wokeness itself is interesting because it is kind of a decentralized cultural movement, as you pointed out. But I think we can have decentralized movements as well that kind of counter it rather than rather you know rather. Yeah, than I mean, just to give you an example of something that inspired me the other day, there's a group of um, young parents that I've gotten to know in Los Angeles who are just really disheartened by their lack of options in terms of schools that haven't been captured by this ideology. And they're meeting and talking about starting a new school. That's awesome. Like that's, that's the mentality that we need right now. We need an entrepreneurial mentality. If you don't see the thing that you want for your children, they are way more precious than pretty much anything else. So it's like, think about starting a new school. And I think if there's a silver lining optimist, um, to, to COVID in this past year, I think it's that, you know, the world turned upside down. Yeah. People saw, I think, and I hope they cling to this, like what was really essential, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if we, if we really keep that in our mind, like what is really essential in the world? Like, I think good schools for our kids and giving them a good education that inculcates in them, you know, a love of, of all the values we've been talking about today, like, that's more important than having a diploma from Yale or Harvard. It just is. And I think that the more of us that can model that, that can model like not taking the traditional, let's say the elite traditional choice, making a different one maybe for our yeah. families and building new things. Like, first of all, that will be good for us, but it will also give courage to people inside the institutions uh, to, to voice their dissent. When there is another option out there, when there's competition, it actually strengthens the voices of dissent inside the, the institutions. Definitely. So new, new new schools, new universities, new media new companies, everything. new everything. Yeah, new. Right. Well, it's time it's time to build then, like Mark says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Barry, for joining us today. Thank you, Joe.